Hello everyone, I'm Peter McMillan from NT Shorter and we're broadcasting today from the land of the Larrakia people and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging and to any other First Nations people who may be watching this episode. This is episode four of Sharing the Couch and it's an initiative where we uh, bring on to this program a number of people from across Australia and closer to home who can talk about their perspectives on housing and homelessness the great work that they're doing and their thoughts as to what can be achieved from here. And uh, today uh, we are sharing the couch with Wendy Morton uh, and I'll introduce Wendy in just a moment. But in terms of what sharing the couch means, obviously we've got another person online. So it is a virtual couch, but also a reference to couch surfing, which is one of those hidden forms of homelessness that affects many young people across the territory and many not so young people. And it's a form of homelessness that many of us often don't see day to day, but is uh, a real challenge in terms of providing housing to those who most need it. Over the next uh, fortnights, we're planning to reduce uh, a podcast every Thursday, uh, every second Thursday, I should say. And uh, we have a number of uh, really great guests lined up. So don't miss out. Uh, go to our YouTube channel. Uh, so just Google NT Shelter YouTube and you'll find these episodes and subscribe if you can. And so you make sure that you don't follow, don't miss out on any by hitting that subscribe button and you, you'll see them as, as they're released coming through. So uh, today, uh, as I mentioned, uh, Wendy Morton is our guest and uh, Wendy is has been a tireless advocate for vulnerable territorians now for more than two decades, uh, including 14 years as a former executive director of the Northern Territory Council of Social Services. Wendy's been involved in strategic decision-making and policy development on a range of issues impacting on vulnerable groups during that time, including alcohol, housing disabilities, mental health, youth justice, and child protection. Her wealth of experience also includes eight years as a disability discrimination advocate and outreach worker at Darwin Community Legal Service. Prior to that, she worked primarily in the disability sectors in the Northern Territory and Queensland. Wendy has also worked as a consultant and is a member, or has been a member of several Northern Territory government advisory groups. And I think from memory, uh, we'll come to those in a moment, but some of those have been associated with Team Territory, the economic reconstruction initiatives in the Northern Territory, as well as skills committees, skills and economics committees with the Northern Territory government. In August last year, Wendy was appointed as a Community Housing Registrar NT under the Community Housing Providers National Uniform Law 2013 Act. Wendy calls Darwin home. She's originally hails from Brisbane. Uh, and among her many interests, she's a lover of most things sport, animals, books, jigsaws, and chilling out, which is just wonderful. And we also know that Wendy was a, uh, a nifty tennis player and has apparently survived a croc attack at Dundee Beach. Wendy, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Peter. You've done quite a lot of research there. Look, it's not hard to find. I mean, you know, you're obviously a... Uh, tried and tested and true blue territorial having survived a croc attack. Just what, what was going on there? Uh, we were, short story, but we were out at Dundee fishing. I uh, heard my partner at the time say, wind, run. I looked down and there was a croc about, I don't know, a bit over a metre away from me coming out of the water. And uh, I ran probably faster than I'd run in a long time. Gosh. And, uh, very territory 
uh, experience. <laughs> Very much so. Did you have a frying pan to hit it on the head with or something? No, I didn't. But, you no. know, from now on, having seen that video last week, I'll carry a frying pan. Fantastic. I've That's, never actually fished off the beach again. I love it. I tell you <laughs> what, I, you know, um, better you than me. That's all I can say. You're probably a faster runner with all that tennis training you did too. It was, um, I don't think I'd run that fast in a while. <laughs> uh, it, and it had been a while since the tennis training, but um, it all kicked in. <laughs> My goodness, I reckon it would too. Well, we're glad you're still with us because you've done a lot of great work since. But I just want to start, I guess, by going back to um, the fact that you were, I guess, a, a Brisbane girl originally, grew up there and went to school around uh, Kelvin Grove and Albany Creek High. Uh, and did um, arts and uh, community welfare, amongst other things, uh, through your education. Um, so I guess I'm interested in how you got involved in um, in community welfare and, and a social justice stream. What was it that attracted you to that area? Yeah, look, I think there was two things. Uh, one, I actually went to university originally to do journalism, as my father had been a journalist, uh, but ended up I was doing a... Um, doing some work for a particular subject and ended up volunteering for a disability organisation and uh, and realising really quickly that um, I really enjoyed the work and, and wanted to do more of that. Uh, and I think a, a lot of it actually goes back to um, I had a cleft palate when I was born, which uh, required lots of surgeries and lots of um, speech therapy. And, and you know, and I, I think as a child when you speak differently or anything's different about you, you know, you can feel the sense of being different to other people and uh, and whatever. And also I had a father who um, uh, was legally blind all of my growing up and, and later on in life was, was completely blind. Uh, so I guess that really impacted on our family dynamics and um, the relationships. So I, I think those things all combined probably gave me a sense of uh, feeling what it was like to be a little bit different. Sure. Although, you know, acknowledging now that um, I had it pretty easy compared to a lot of people. Uh, but, um, yeah, I, th I think that sort of initially inspired some of the work in the disability services. And and then I guess that's starting to work in that area and realising, you know, the injustice that some people face and whether that be discrimination or, uh, you know, the inability or the difficulties of getting ahead when one was living in poverty and and seeing the impact on people. Uh, so when I first came to the Territory, I was still working in disability services and ended up getting a, a job at Darwin Community Legal Service as a disability discrimination advocate. And it was just mind-blowing, really. I guess all of the things that the legal service were doing and, and then I got to get involved in and, and we started campaigns around new buildings that were happening in town and trying to get access uh, for people and... Um, and, you know, we, we were doing, you know, different campaigns. There was campaigns at the time around Jabaluka and for people who'd been arrested out at Jabaluka. And um, so I got exposed to all these, you know, really different social justice issues that were happening across the Territory and, um, and had some fabulous mentors uh, along the way, but particularly um, Cassandra Goldie, when, who is now the head of ACOS, was the head of Darwin Community Legal Service when I started. And... Um, she was this fabulous mentor to me and, and gave me lots of opportunity and took me with her, to, you know, to meetings with the ministers, for example, and, and got me exposed to that. And uh, I was just on the weekend found a, a letter to the editor that I wrote um, when I was at Durham Community Legal Service about a particular issue and, and another one that I wrote back when I was living in Rockhampton 
around um, access to women's shelters. And and so I think, you know, having people around you who uh, really include you and mentor you and um, expose you to things was something that I was really fortunate to have happen. Um, and, yeah, so those first few years at Durham Community Legal Service having Cassandra around and, uh, and then the next few years that I was there was um, Caitlin Perry, who, again, was a really great mentor to me and um, so and, and really encouraged me to, you know, go for the role at NT Coffs. And, uh, and, and I think that background at Durham Community Legal Service, Service of that advocacy role that I had there mm-hmm. really um, gave me a really good background for going to NT Coffs and, and also that, that interaction with the law. Mm. Uh, at Down Community Legal Service again gave me that that structure of how to how to I guess analyze things at times and, and how to approach it, but also the power that um, law reform could have. And when I was at uh, DCLS, we um, uh, near the end there was a again lesbian law reform project that uh, ended up I think it was something like seven out of ten uh, reforms went through uh, mm. with the with the then really new Labor government. And that was so exciting and motivating to see actual change in law that would impact and really change people's lives. Mm-hmm. And um, so that, you know, those, those experiences, I guess, you know, propelled me to want to keep going in that kind of area. That's fantastic, Wendy. And I guess just going back to the comment that you made before about, you know, when, when you were young and, and the, uh, I guess the blindness that your father experienced and, and your uh, challenges as well, did you... Did you have, I guess, looking back now, do you feel, or even at the time, did you feel that you were getting the services and the supports that you needed back then for disability? Yeah. Um, look, I, I think on the whole, yes. I, I guess as a child, I probably don't know how difficult it was for my my parents at the time. And I'm sure I was, I was the youngest of four and I, I think uh, there was a lot of, um, you know, that made it really difficult by parents in terms of the support mm. other children required. Um, but um, I, I think in some way we did get access because we were probably, you know, fairly middle class, white privileged sort of family who did get access to speech therapy and, um, you know, dental services, all the things that come along with having having cleft palate. Um, but, but I think one of the things I probably did miss out on at times was understanding the impact on me and understanding the impact on my on my family. And, um, I, yeah, I, I think one of the things that did get me through was was, you know, my family was really strong and, and supportive, but also I, you know, I had good friends who were really supportive of me and, um, and you know, teachers, I think, in primary school who were, who were supportive. Although I did just have a look at some school reports recently and see that I was getting a C for communication skills, um, which I thought was a little bit unfair, but anyway. A bit harsh, perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> a bit absolutely. harsh. Yeah. Uh, but, um, uh, so yeah, in, in some way, I think we did um, get the services that we needed. Um, but, um, but but again, I think that had a lot to do with um, you know the ability of my parents to find the services and 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 get them, and at times to be able to afford them when when we needed them too. Sure. And I, I I know one time when um, when I was back working in disability, hearing a um, a parent talk about in the space of three years, their child had had something like 15 different speech therapists. Mm-hmm. And, and it's hard to, you know, in, improve when, when your speech therapist would be continually changing. And, um, and I'm sure that there was times when there was no access at all to speech therapy. So, so I, I think I was, I was really lucky in that mm-hmm. sense. Um, but also really aware that, 
you know, not everybody would be so lucky. Sure. And in terms of you making that decision going to go into social work at, um, at university, I know you did other things, had a lot of other interests as well, but was that because you felt that you had something you could offer having gone through that experience or was it out of, I guess, anger that you think people should, you know, should be treated better or there should be better rights for people? I mean, what was it that really yeah. wanted you to get into that? What was the driver there? I'm curious. Yeah, I think maybe a bit of, a, bit of all of that, having some sense of, you know, the impact the things it had on me and some understanding of that. Uh, but also as time when I was working in Rockhampton, I um I worked, it was my first real time of being really exposed to um issues affecting Aboriginal people really. Yeah. And some of the people I worked with, they um were some Aboriginal women who were working on the riverbank in Rockhampton with people who were homeless. And, and they would come to meetings at work having all of these um, terrible things happening within their families, all of these pressures, and they were still willing to really support me and, and educate me on, on things that were happening. And, and I used to think these women, they were so incredibly strong. And, um, and, and I think part of that really inspired me, you know, because they really exposed me to some of the challenges that were out there and things that were happening for people. So, yeah, some of that, that anger, I, I think. And, you know, then various things that would happen along the way and, and then you'd, you'd realise the injustice of it mm-hmm. and and that would spur you on. And um, and I, I think, you know, <laughs> you know you maintain, I've maintained that, I think, pretty much the whole way through and, um, at, you know, at entry cost to be exposed to so many injustices that were out there mm-hmm. and, and so many good people also wanting to do something about it. Uh, and... Yeah, so I think yeah, it was it was a mix of both. And, and when, yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. no. Thank you. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut off there, but I'm just curious as well that you know you know so many people over that period of time where you met so many people within our sector, the human services sector. I'm I'm curious as to whether you have a sense for how many people are motivated to go into our sector because they've had a had an experience either for themselves or with a family member or a close friend where they feel that's that's not right. You know, I I'm. I feel like I can make a contribution in that area and, and that drives them. Do you have a sense for that? Yeah, I, I think there are, you know, quite a lot of people who, who end up with that. And, and I think it's really important when you're doing that to in some way have um, uh, not resolved the issues for the reasons why you come in, but, but have an understanding of those and, and then be able to go out there and, and share that knowledge and that experience that you've had. I, I think one of the major changes in our sector over the last you know, 20, 30 years is the encouragement of, of people who've had lived experience to come and, and work in the sector and and learn from that. And uh, that's that's a definite change, you know, I've seen, I mean, even in the last 10 years, that um, real reflection of if we want to do this better, we have to include people who've got lived experience in, in our, you know, policy making, in our direct service delivery, um, and we have to hear from those who've, who've experienced it themselves. And then, then I think a, a certain element of that, you know, for people is also that that anger and the wanting to do something about it and acknowledging that um, you're in a privileged position in order to be able to do something about it. And, uh, you know, I'm probably like many that, you know, you don't, it's only when you look back that you realise you had a pretty privileged position growing up, um, you know, despite whatever, you know, challenges my cleft palate gave me. And, and that ability then to go, you know, okay, now I can give back and I think that's, um, yeah, so I, I'd say there's a bit of a mix of people. Sure. 
you know, it's interesting that um, there are many different roles within the sector and you could have, uh, I guess, been more at the clinical perspective or the caseworker perspective and you've, you've ended up in advocacy. And I'm sure the time at DCLS would have been formative in that decision. But it's quite a different role, isn't it, to get out and be, and to be an advocate as opposed to just being a frontline um, worker. Uh, I am, and you mentioned Cassandra Goldie and the impact she's had as a mentor. I'm, I'm curious as to her impact and, and maybe, I guess, how you end up being such a leading advocate in the Northern Territory. I do think that that experience of having been a direct service worker, I think is really important and is not essential if you want to do advocacy, but, gee, I think there were so many times when that gave me an understanding of what it was like to work on the front line and... Um, and to have worked so directly with people. And some of my greatest working moments were, were working directly with people with disabilities and the relationships that I formed with them and their families and, you know, some that continue today when I run into them in the, in the supermarket and get to hear how their son or daughter is going or how they're going. And, and so they were some fabulous moments. And it really did, I think, give me a good grounding. Then in, in understanding there's, there's all, in, all different perspectives on what's happening out there and, uh, and so having worked in different roles, I think, was really important. And uh, so, yes. Um, and then for Cassandra, it was, um, uh, I mean, one, it was this initial thing that she believed in, in that I had something to contribute to the to the discussion. And then that people took the time to uh, really educate me about the law and, and the impact that the law could or did have on people. And, and then that you know, starting off going into to meetings as somebody's advocate and, and working with them and, and, and I guess that ability to support somebody to do the advocacy them, themselves was also a really big part of it. Uh, so, and, yeah, so that was part of it. And, and I think, um, you know, Cassandra also gave me this uh, sense of you, you, you work on individual matters for somebody, but the biggest impact was going to be when you changed the system at a higher level and whether that was changing the law or a policy, that could have such a massive, massive impact on people. And we see that in the negative as well. So, you know, when we think about the impact of the intervention, for example, you know, that it has on such a broad number of people, and then we we see when there's, you know, again, going back to that gay and lesbian law reform, that that completely could change people's lives and, and their, their safety within a community just because of a bit of um, change to the law. So I think that, and that, so I, I was then really inspired to, to want to change it at the systemic level rather than sort of focus on that individual level. And whilst I, I did, I have, you know, such great memories of working directly in, in disability support roles. Um, and and there's time, there were some people I think I, I was, um, I, you know, worked really well with and, and then others that uh, I just think, oh, maybe this isn't for me. And, and it's hard work. It's, it's probably one of the hardest roles I've ever done and, um, and the, you know, the risk associated with it as well. Um, you know, when you're working directly with people and what that involves. And uh, But, yes, I, I think I did. I, I love the strategy and, the, and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah. Absolutely. And there would have been some big wins during that time, uh, as well as some challenges and frustrations, no doubt. It's often a, a tough slog trying to get change uh, through systemic issues. What were some of the, I guess, what are some of the things that you learnt during that time that helped 
get big things through government and, and getting big systemic change? What, what are the success factors there? Um, I think having a, a sense of who the audience is and, and what who it is that you need to change um, or get them to understand, you know, want to change the bit of law or whatever it is, and so being really clear on that. Um, I think relationships are so important and um, that ability to maintain relationships and create relationships even if you're um, you're on different pages, that's really important. And, you know, I've always said that you can, you can agree to disagree and still maintain and develop a relationship. And but once you lose the relationship, it's, it's really hard then to, to get change. Um, and I think having all of the people involved in needing that change. So um, uh, I think, you know, of an example, but, um, uh, you know, like I'm just thinking even when we were, you and I back in my intercost days, when we were trying to get change around the efficiency dividend, and how that would impact on organisations, of making sure that we had all of the key players around the table and then leveraging those relationships. So I had relationships with some ministers whereas you had them with others. And, and so to be able to kind of use that um, jointly to affect that change and to ensure that we're all on the same page. And um, I, I guess another one is, is preparation. And one of the biggest things to happen in my time at and to cost towards the end was the um, Royal Commission. Uh, sorry, it was the initial Four Corners report into youth justice. And, and we were part of a um, group called Making Justice Work. And, you know, we'd, we'd been doing lots of work over many years around uh, what changes to the justice system should look like. And we knew that this Four Corners report was coming up. And we did a whole lot of work in the days beforehand to make sure that we were ready, thinking, oh, there might be a little bit of interest from this program and, you know, making sure that the Facebook um, page or the, the website was up to date and, and and making sure that we were really clear on the ask and we had everybody on the same page. And But, you know, equally, there was things that we had dismissed as not being one of our asks because we thought it wouldn't be possible. Uh, and I'm, I'm forever grateful that we had done that work before the Four Corners program happened because I don't think my phone had ever rung more the, the next day after that Four Corners report. But, but what was really important, there was, we were ready. Mm. And so in doing media that, the next day or, or the weeks that followed or the meetings with, with government, we were really ready for that. And, and so I think that preparation was incredibly important and that we had all, everybody on the same page. And, and so we had done so much background work on it so that we were were ready um, and to be able to take advantage of that when the opportunity was there. And ironically, sometimes with really big change, there has to be some kind of incident that happens in order to make it happen. Mm -hmm. And ours was, was the Four Corners report. And uh, so it, you don't know when that's going to happen, but when it happens, you want to be ready. And that was hugely important. Absolutely. It was a real watershed moment, really, wasn't it? Mm, yeah. It was. Yeah. And for those of us who were living in a state like myself at the time, that seemed to come out of the blue and it's such a shock um, to see that. Uh, but, you know, obviously, like you said, being prepared and, and having, um, having uh, I guess, being ready uh, in terms of what was needed uh, after that was uh, released and it would have been a very, um, a very crazy time probably in terms <laughs> of the level of interest, as you've said, 
Yeah. When I'm interested about uh, our sector, the housing and homelessness sector, I know you would have, um, as part of your role at NTCOS, had, had um, certainly had carriage for, for that as part of a number of different areas within the social services sector. Do you think the role that uh, our members uh, and, and I guess their frontline staff do, the, the, the work that they do at the front end, do you think that the work of our sector is fully understood by government, the importance of, of what they do in, you know, I guess, preventing homelessness and um, and getting people housed? Uh, no, look, I, I guess it's probably appreciated by some elements of government who, who understand it and appreciate it. I guess more broadly, probably no, throughout the um, government more broadly or, or the um, community as a whole. I, I think there's often an, a... Um, you know, I don't want to know much about it. I just want to know that somebody else is doing it and and it only becomes a focus when something's going wrong and that's when we might sort of um, appreciate it. But but no, I don't think it is recognised. And I, I think the NGO sector in, in general, community services sector in general, is not, you know, well-respected for the... Um, yeah, for the, for the work that people do. And, and I think that's reflected often, you know, for example, in, in the wages of, of the sector, which um, aren't as high as some other industries. And yeah, I, I don't think, I think one of the things that's not appreciated is is the um, the amount that it, for example, just we just want to talk in economic terms, the amount that it saves government through other systems. And so that if we, if people are living in, in stable housing and getting the support that they need, um, you know, chances are it's going to reduce the burden on the health system and the criminal justice system and, and other interacting things. So I, I don't think people fully appreciate the amount of money that's um, saved by the sector so that when we talk about the amount of money that's invested in the sector, people just see it as money that's invested and never seen again, whereas it's actually, one, preventing a whole lot of other um, economic impacts uh, but also the sector invests back into the community. So most people who uh, work in the community services sector in, in the Northern Territory live here, work here and spend their money here. So I, I think, um, so one, yes, not fully appreciated and two, don't really fully understand the, the important role in the economy that the sector plays. So it sounds like we've got some more work to do there for sure. I am interested in, uh, in terms of the 20 years that you've been in the, I guess, territory doing those various roles. And, and I guess particularly during the last 14 when you were in uh, that role of executive director in NTCOS. Looking back, as you mentioned a couple of times, do you think we have moved forward in that time? Mm-hmm. And the reason I ask that is often, on a, I guess, on a day-to-day or month-by-month or year-by-year basis, Often um, people get a little bit dispirited and think things will never change or, or things will always be like this. Have you got any thoughts around that? Um, yeah, I definitely think things have changed. And, um, I mean, just on that, I think a really important thing is to appreciate the little wins because, yes, we don't get huge amounts of wins and so it's important to take the time to appreciate them when you get them and and celebrate them. Um, but I do think things have changed. And I'll just give one example that, you know, 10 years or so ago, maybe longer, you know, the Department of Business would not have seen the NGO sector as part of the economy. And now, you know, over the last five, ten years, they've had numerous programs either more generally for NGOs or specific, you know, they had a specific program for NDIS at one point. And so I think the recognition of the role that the the sector plays within, you know, for government has has really changed. Um, 
And and I think, uh, yeah, I mean, look, for, for on the whole, I think that there's there's been lots of um, things that have improved. I, I know for many individuals that you know that may not not feel that way, but um, if if we look at things, um, you know, e- even the emergence of things such as Aboriginal Housing NT, and to to now be you know well funded and and supported by government and recognised by government as a really key player in improving housing for Aboriginal people then I think we can, you know, take those wins of going, okay, there's an understanding. And when I was mentioned before about including people's lived experience in the discussion, mm-hmm. you know, that, that's just so important and I think has led to lots of um, significant change in, in some areas like mental health and that, you know, will continue to change. And in, in some of those things, I guess, we're on the beginning of a, a journey and, and the frustration can be that, you know, we make all these improvements and then government changes and we go backwards a few steps. But um, uh, I, I guess we have to think of those wins and then keep fighting when we go backwards and Absolutely. and appreciate when we have the wins. Yeah, you're right. There's, there are some good examples there of things that have changed even in just the last few years. So that's it's, mm. it's, it's good to remember that, isn't it, um, when things are hard. So, Wendy, you've got, uh, after a long time in NT costs, you finished in 2019. You did some stuff uh, in, on a consultancy base. I know you um, worked at a number of NGOs as uh, acting executive officer while they were filling positions and the like. So you're busy. You never really stopped. And then you get the call about the community housing registrar's role. You want to tell us about how you felt when you got that call and um, what happened well, from I, there? I think there was an element of what does that role do? <laughs> <laughs> and um, and so there was a definite, um, could you send me some information so I can understand more of what the role does? And uh, I have joked a few times that if, if it had been, you know, amongst a whole lot of other jobs, it, it's probably not one that I would have looked at and thought that this is for me. Uh, but, you know, that opportunity to sit down with um, with government and, and talk it through. And, and I was really clear to the beginning saying, if you're wanting someone who's just going to look at the regulations and and that's all, then I'm probably not your person. But if you want someone who's going to engage with the sector more broadly and play that sort of role, then, you know, I'd love to do it. And, and fortunately for me, that's what they were, were after. Uh, but it, it did take me a while initially to uh, really understand, you know, what the role was. And, and I think that the... The fun part or and scary part as well was that um, up until this point, the role had always been done by somebody in government as a bit of an add-on and, and there wasn't actually, it never been much of an investment in the role. So this was the first time having an independent person in the role. And so what it meant in many ways was that I got to create what the role looks like. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think in, in some way I'm, I'm still sort of working some of that out. But, um, but it's been you know, a little bit scary, a little bit fun to actually create the role and, and work out where to sort of invest my time and and where's where I can make the most difference. Okay. Um, and um, we'll get into the nitty-gritty of the role in just a minute, but in terms of, I guess, the skills and experience you'd had from the sector over those many years, have you been able to kind of bring some of that thinking towards this role? Yeah, definitely. And look, I think one thing I brought is the relationships with the sector and and with government, and and to be able to um, now engage with those organisations, albeit in a different role, but having a really good understanding, I think, of what they already do, and um, has has been really helpful for me. Um, and I, I think the 
one of the bits of experience that I can bring is is knowing or, or wanting to sort of help grow the, the sector and knowing and understanding how important creating a community housing sector will be in in terms of addressing some of the issues, or, you know, going some way to address homelessness in the Northern Territory. Um, I, I think the other part, which I know it's not so directly a result maybe for my role, but is, is understanding where community housing fits in the broader spectrum of housing and homelessness in the Northern Territory, and but more broadly, because, you know, it's so hard to tackle all the other issues, whether it be, you know, the impact of um, uh, alcohol or, or mental health or, or disability or whatever it may be, if people don't have stable housing. And so also understanding that context, I think, is is really important for the role. And, and I think you can look at it and go, well, actually, it doesn't matter. But, but I think it does to understand where community housing fits and why it's so important and hopefully be um, then a good spokesperson or um, I, I hesitate to use the word advocate now, but, you know, someone who's going to... Um, really want to play a key role in, in growing the sector and, and in growing the sector in a way that's really um, sustainable for both the sector and for government. Mm. It's interesting because your role, as I understand it, you, you kind of, um, it's a government-funded role but you and you, re, you have a reporting relationship through, but you're not like a typical uh, agency staff member, are you? You've got a level no, of independence. No. Yeah, so I'm not actually a um, employee of um, Northern Territory government, which I think uh, does really help in in maintaining the independence of the role, whilst also having some obviously a relationship with government. You know, they're, they're paying my wages, um, and I'm appointed by government, and I think they can get rid of me at any time as well. So there's obviously that relationship. Uh, but um, but I, I think uh, I, I think the experience actually entry costs has maybe helped me. With this, it seems kind of kind of easy to me that both government and the sector are my key stakeholders in this, and um, to be able to have that relationship with government is really important. And whilst also being able to maintain some some independence to that, so um, so yes, it's I, it's actually a different setup to most of the other registrars across the country, and mm. uh, and I, I'm learning you know the challenges and the the benefits of that as we go along, but um. Yeah, it's, it's. I think it's working quite well so far. Terrific. Now, as we as we record this, the government's announced that it's it's planning to transfer up to forty percent of its urban stock to registered community housing providers over the next five years. That's that's quite a period of change for tenants as well, I guess. And a few people might be thinking, "What does this mean for me?" And I guess you would have um, seen over your time many big change programs having to be put through. Do you get the opportunity in your role to, I guess, have a bit of a look, an independent look at how that's being handled to make sure the transition goes smoothly? Because there might be some fears out there about what does community housing mean and, and what will it look like for me? Yeah. And look, I do get the opportunity to provide my my thoughts on, you know, for example, the community growth strategy that was developed by government and and the transfers. And I mean, ultimately, it's government who make the decisions. But um. Uh, you know, yes, I've had the opportunity to comment, and I, I think it's. Um, I mean, it is really exciting to to um, think that you know, really significant transfer of public housing will happen over the next two years, and and I do think that there's so much evidence to show that the community housing sector 
can manage, you know, some of these things better than, than government. And uh, they tend to have much closer relationships with their tenants. And, and I guess, you know, one of the things about the community housing um, regulations is around the expectations of organisations. So whilst government, for whatever reason, really struggles to turn around properties in a, in a really short space of time, the community housing sector has requirements on them to be pretty speedy in, in some of those things and pretty speedy with the maintenance and, and following up on issues. And, you know, in order to maintain their compliance, they need to be doing those things. So um, I, I think that, you know, there'll, there'll be challenges ahead for community housing organisations and it's not going to magically resolve every issue for tenants or the or government or the community that are out there. But, um, uh, but you know, I, I think it will, um, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to it happening and, and hopefully seeing a, lo a lot of change for tenants. And ultimately, this is around... Um, providing better outcomes for tenants across the Northern Territory and hopefully as well as we go along, more housing for people. Um, and that's that, that's at the centre of everything that's happening. And um, so I think that's really important that we remember that this is actually about hopefully getting better outcomes for people. Um, and, um, and, you know, I, I guess we can look at the numbers of people in the Territory who are without stable housing now and, and know that we have to do some different things in order to, um, you know, improve that. And one is providing better support to people to maintain their housing. And so um, I think community housing organisations in the Territory are in a really good position to do that. Sure. And and when you're now backtracking a little bit here in terms of your work with the uh, Territory Economic Reconstruction Commission and Team Territory, but I was um, I was somewhat uh, encouraged by some of the wording from the report there around the importance of social and affordable housing. It seems to me that people there do have an understanding, do get some of this stuff that we need to have a um, an effective, sustainable housing system if we're going to realise our growth. Have you got any comments on, yeah. on that? Um, no, look, I, I think that's right. I, I think that um, governments and politicians of all flavours are, are realising the importance of community housing and housing more generally, affordable housing more generally for, for people um, and and recognising that it's so difficult to resolve all of these other issues if we don't actually provide stable housing for people and, and whatever that sort of looks like, whether that be, you know, some crisis, immediate sort of housing or, or more long-term housing. Um, and I, I think also, you know, governments everywhere are also realising the, um, the cost of living issues that certainly the territory experiences, and and I know you know everyone's experiencing it at the moment, but it's you know it's tough. Um, and then I I think added to that, I might be going off track, but I think we all realise the complexity of housing in the territory, you know, particularly once we come to remote, and and it takes a long time, and it's expensive, and and it's hard, but also realising that if we're and this is where I think the economic um, the um, Territory Economic Reconstruction Commission was coming from it of realising that in order to grow the economy, particularly outside of the urban centres, housing is a key part of that and, um, and recognising that role of we can't get all these people to come to the Territory if we don't actually have housing for them and we can't grow the economy in remote areas if people don't have housing. Absolutely. That's really, uh, really important, isn't it? And you would hope that it's self-evident, but sometimes we do need to remind people that don't, don't forget about housing. <laughs> exactly, exactly right. 
Now, Wendy, um, it might be might have been a little bit of confusion around your role in the sense that um, a lot of community housing providers that have been up here for a while think, well, finally we've got a chance to to grow and get and manage some some stock former public housing stock and, and that's great and we I think there's a, a acknowledgement from government as well that they want to see that happen as well but ultimately we have had a, a bit of a mini explosion in a number of registered housing providers now that, that I guess it's your role to register but if I'm understanding correctly you don't actually decide yourself as to who gets stock and who doesn't do you want to talk us through what your role involves and what it doesn't involve okay um so in my role as registrar um, so part of the role is around one registering new organisations. So we work closely with the um, office of the registrar in New South Wales to do that registration process and then compliance. And so for new organisations, and we've had a couple of new ones come on board in the last couple of months since I've been in the role, who are Northern Territory based, and that's really exciting. And then if organisations are registered in other parts of Australia, so um, uh, for example, we've got four organisations now who have been registered in other locations and who then have decided they also want to work in the Northern Territory. And so if they're registered elsewhere, then they're, um, other than advising me, um, they're then able to, you know, really the path is then clear for them to work in other locations. I guess a really key part of understanding the difference, though, in the role to that of government is that um, so the government makes decisions around funding. And so ultimately it will be for the Northern Territory government to decide who they're going to fund in order to um, as part of their growth strategy. So in terms of the public housing transfers, um, who will win that is ultimately, ultimately up to government. And I have no role in that. I, I have no I don't hear any of the, the um, information I don't sit on any of the um, assessment panels. And, um, and I think it's really important that we keep those, those two roles really separate. Um, so, you know, my role is there around regulation and compliance. Government makes those decisions as to who to fund. So, um, uh, you know, we might end up with, you know, 15 or 20 or 30 providers, but at the end of the day, government will make the decision who they, who they fund. Um, and then I guess what I see is really other key, really important parts of my role is to, one, when New South Wales are doing their um, registration and compliance um, assessments, that I have, that I can provide the context that those organisations are working in. And knowing that if you're an organisation in, in Darwin or Catherine or Tennant Creek or, or Nullumboy, the context that you're working in is often really different to those in New South Wales or any, anywhere else in Australia. And so I see that I've got a really important role at each point of the process to provide the context. Um, and then also in terms of, you know, the, the state and territory registrars um, work together on a whole lot of issues. And, and in that, I see that I've got a really important role again to raise the issues that have things that happen in the Northern Territory that are quite different elsewhere. So one of the, um, uh, the things I'm working on with other, that I'm leading a project with other registrars at the moment is around increasing the number of Aboriginal controlled organisations who become registered under the um, legislation, so become community housing providers. So actually in the Territory, we actually probably have a higher percentage than anywhere else in Australia, but it's really important that in some of the other parts of the Northern Territory where there's not yet providers, 
that we provide the support needed for Aboriginal organisations to achieve that registration. And sometimes that may be, you know, just providing some capacity support for that to happen. But I think the other question we have to look at is, does the current system meet the needs of Aboriginal people? And, and I want to be a, a, um, a good advocate in that way to pass on information and, and influence if it means that there needs to be change in order for um, Aboriginal organisations to become registered and also continue to meet the compliance. Because at the end of the day, that's, again, what's going to produce the best outcomes for Aboriginal people in the Territory. Absolutely. Very well said, Wendy. And, and we do want to see uh, Aboriginal housing back in Aboriginal hands when we can. And um, that, that's part of the local decision-making uh, framework. It's part of self-determination and um, and it's an aspiration that's very important uh, from all of us that are working in that space. So I want to thank you for sharing your thoughts today um, and congratulate you on the impact you've had over such a long time, 20 years plus in the Northern Territory. I've no doubt that you'll be able to continue to use those relationships that you referred to and your influence to uh, successfully see some change, some much needed change really in our housing sector with the growth of a, a new industry, essentially. It's very exciting. We've got the Community Housing Industry Development Plan, which is being worked on at the moment, which you mentioned before. There do seem to be, there do seem to be a lot of uh, reasons to have some optimism that we can and will do better than what we've done before albeit, of course, having a long way to go. And I must also say, I noticed you, you perked up a few times there when you were telling some of those stories when you were DCLS and that. So I can see that passion and enthusiasm is, is definitely there. So um, thank you for joining us today. Make sure you um, stay away from Crocs at Dundee Beach because we need you around for a little bit longer yet, I can assure you. And, uh, and thank you once again for sharing the couch with us today. Thanks, Peter. It's been lovely chatting to you. Thanks, Wendy. You've been listening to uh, Wendy Morton, the Community Housing Registrar in the NT. We've had a, a really great conversation about Wendy's time in the Territory, including uh, her time as Executive Director at NT Cost for 14 years and some of the work she's been doing more recently. So this has been episode four of Sharing the Couch. Uh, please uh, continue to follow as we release new episodes over the coming weeks. Every second Thursday is the plan. So do subscribe to our YouTube channel to keep up to date with the latest thought leaders and uh, contributors to housing and homelessness from both here in the Territory and further afield. Thank you for watching our podcast and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to episode four of Sharing the Couch by NT Shelter. Opinions expressed by guests on Sharing the Couch are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of NT Shelter or host Peter McMillan. Thanks for listening and don't forget to hit subscribe.